By way of introduction, I would like to ask you a little bit of a dorm theology question. All right, this is the source of great wisdom and increased understanding when we get in these dorm theology discussions, right? Um, but, you know, there are questions that are thrown out, you know, for instance, what is God's greatest attribute? Well, maybe that's a better question. Um, maybe that's not, that's too uh, solid a question to be dorm theology, you know. Maybe um, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen or whatever. Um, but, you know, here's a, maybe a little bit of a dorm theology question for you. What is the worst sin in the Bible? Okay. Now, I'm not necessarily asking you. I, I see, you know, some of you are like, man, I hope he doesn't call on me. And others of you are uh, seriously contemplating uh, kibitzing here, right, Josiah? And, um, but what is, the, what is the worst sin in the Bible? More than likely, you know, our minds jump to certain types of things. Maybe it's murder, thou shalt not kill. You know, maybe it's uh, adultery, thou shalt not, uh, you know, commit, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, or, you know, adultery or fornication. We might think of, you know, what David did, where he did both of those things. He committed adultery and then killed Bathsheba's husband to cover it up. You know, maybe we would think of, um, you know, other aspects of sin. And if, you, if I were to open the floor here, we could get a lot of probably um, ideas on what is the, the worst sin. But usually, the sins that, if I've asked this question before, and usually the sins that are thrown out in those circumstances fall into one of two categories. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 15, 16, and 17, you know, we get uh, the probably familiar admonition, right? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And the majority of the time, the sins that get thrown out as what's the worst sin you can think of, probably fall into those two categories. Okay, The lust of the flesh, where it's adultery or those kinds of things, even murder. Lust of the eyes would be covetousness okay? and desiring things. It's not always, however, that someone would readily mention the third category. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. What's the third category there? Pride of life. Yeah, the pride of life. And I want to preach to you this morning... Uh, on this topic, with the Lord's help, the pitfall of pride. There are some messages that, you know, you get excited about preaching. Boy, this is really going to encourage folks. This is really going to, you know, um, and, and admonish them to serve the Lord. Or they're going to really, you know, hopefully this will be exactly what somebody needs. Or, you know, I'll get a certain response. Or maybe, you know, boy, they really need to hear it. And there's other messages, quite honestly, that preachers aren't jumping up and down to preach. I had other ideas of what I wanted to preach in chapel. And over the last couple of weeks, the Lord kept you know, bringing me back to this idea. One reason this is not a fun topic to preach on is no preacher, if they're in their right mind, would stand here and say, I've got this figured out. Now, let me explain this to you how this works. Okay? If we're honest, we would all say this is a lifelong struggle. Okay? This is, this, that's in fact what the phrase, the pride of life, means in 1 John chapter 2, is the pride which is characteristic of living things. Okay? It's kind of inherent in our DNA almost. All right? But I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This will be a little bit more of a topical approach, but I, I knew the soundboard was going to ask me for a text, so I picked one. 1 Timothy chapter 3. But I picked this intentionally because 
This is a ministry school. We focus on training for Bible and ministry. That is our focus here. And 1 Timothy 3 is the qualifications of a bishop. Verse 1, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. And you're familiar with, I hope you're familiar with, most of these qualifications. But I want to draw your attention for the purpose of the message this morning to verse number 6. Not a novice, lest he mess up the church budget. Not a novice, lest you know, he uh, choose the wrong cantata for Christmas. All right, the word novice here means, literally means newly planted. Okay? It's the idea of a small seedling that's just come up. All right, if you like to do gardening, maybe you've planted your own seeds and watched them come up, or maybe you start from you know, starter plants that are a few inches high, but they're not firmly established yet, right? Maybe some of you have worked on landscaping crews and you install trees or when folks want them installed in their yard or whatever. What do you typically have to do with a new tree that's pretty small and you dig out the hole, put it in the root ball? You have to stake it and tie it off because it's it's newly planted. It's not firmly established. That's the idea of novice here. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We commit this time to you, ask you to use your word. Lord, we acknowledge that this is an area where we all need a constant reminder. I pray you'd help us say only those things that ought to be said, and that the Spirit of God would bless the preaching of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the pitfall of pride. I want you to see with me, first of all, back to my dorm theology question, I would submit to you that pride would be a good would qualify well as a good answer for that question what is the worst sin in the bible and i will try to demonstrate some of why i would say that by the time we get done today but i want you to see with me first of all the characteristics of pride the characteristics of pride now as you can probably have little difficulty imagining um, i enjoyed word studies and i enjoy you know looking at all of these things i would love to share all of those things with you but I will try to boil this down a little bit. The word, there are, best I could find, there are three primary words in the Old Testament that are translated as pride or proud. What's interesting to me is the same word in the same verse is translated as pride and arrogancy, or the same root word, okay, related concepts. Haughty is another word. There's three primary words that I found in the Old Testament, and about three words in the New Testament. I'm not going to bother to pronounce them for you because that's not um, what you're going to be able to write down in your notes anyway. But I want you to listen to some common denominators. What are the characteristics of pride? One of the primary words that uh, is translated as pride means, the root word means to rise. Okay, it's to rise up. This word in other forms is used of God when it talks about His excellency. Or how God is high, okay? Well, how does that relate to the term pride? In the negative sense, however, this same root word is used of someone who has too high an opinion of self, okay? It is, to use the lexicon definition, arrogance or a cynical insensitivity to the needs of others. In other words, I'm the center of the universe, Everybody, everybody else's needs revolves around mine. 
Can, what would a good illustration of that concept be? Maybe a, a newborn or a toddler? I mean, as far as they're concerned, the world revolves around them, right? But that basic idea of being high translates then to an opinion of self that is too high. We heard an example of that preached on last week. In 1 Samuel 17, David's older brother said, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. That's this uh, root word here. He was accusing David of having you know, too high an opinion of himself. Uh, another, here's another definition. One, a different word that's often translated pride or proud comes from the root word that means to boil. It's the word used in Genesis where Jacob was boiling pottage and Esau came back from the field and sold him his birthright. But the application is this. What's boiling over is a sense of self-importance which is often exaggerated to include defiance or even rebelliousness. So again, an overinflated sense of self. There's another uh, definition, another word in the, or two more words really in the Old Testament, and both of them have the idea of being high. The basic meaning talks about trees being high or mountains being high. In fact, in a positive sense, um, Isaiah, it says, my ways are higher than your ways, saith the Lord. But then when that same word is translated as pride, it's the idea, again, of a view of self that is too high. The New Testament words have you know, a similar uh, connotation. The, uh, the word that here in our passage in 1 Timothy 3.6 has, uh, has the idea of being puffed up. Again, the root word has the idea of a column of smoke that goes up or goes, drifts up high. Again, it's the idea of having an opinion of self that is too high. Another word is this, a state of undue sense of one's importance. Pretension or arrogance. You know what the English word arrogance means? If I could summarize it for you, a view of oneself that is too high. So, if we talk about the characteristics of pride, what would, what would be the characteristic of pride? Number one, pride is a wrong view of self. Okay? As I've just read to you, pride is basically an overestimation of self. Okay? Well, how, how do we compensate for that? If it's a wrong view of self, that leads also to a wrong view of others, right? It's a wrong view of self, a wrong view of others, and then a wrong view of God. It's a, if I have an exaggerated sense of self-importance, then by default, that means I have a lower view of the importance of others. It also means that uh, I do not have a significant enough view of God. The proverb says this, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. So if I have a view of myself that's too high, then I don't see how I need God. Now, do you see why I said the special music this morning? That song led exactly into the theme of this. Lord, I need you. A proud heart doesn't sing that or say that or act that way. But, you know, at its root, pride is a view of self that is too high. Well, the wrong view of self leads to a wrong view of others and a wrong view of God. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses 
you know, heard God calling him out of the burning bush. God first reset Moses' views of God and himself, and then he gave him a job to do. We could give example after example after example like that, but the answer for a wrong view of self is a right view of God. If, I, if my view of self is wrong, then I probably have a wrong view of God as well. I have forgotten what I should know or I have failed to acknowledge God as He is. So we see the characteristics of pride. Number two, I want you to see with me the condemnation of pride. Now, please understand what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that everyone who ever uses this term is wrong. But particularly in the Bible the word pride is not used in a positive context, okay? Now, like I said, the same root word of being high or exalted is used of God. God is exalted. God is on, on this high throne. God is the, the majesty of God, meaning an exalted position. Those are concepts, but the actual concept pride, the, the way it's used in the Bible over and over again is with a tone of condemnation, Okay? Which is why we better be very careful to say, boy, I'm proud of what I accomplished here. Okay? Now, sometimes parents, grandparents, teachers, whatever, say, hey, I'm proud of you for the work you put in. That doesn't automatically mean they've got wrong motives. It's something that we say, and I understand that. But particularly when I'm talking about myself, I've got to be really careful with that. You know, here's a suggestion. Try to substitute the word thankful for the word proud. Okay? Now, if I'm talking, hey, I'm proud of what you've done, I'm proud of the work you put in, basically what I'm saying is I recognize what, what you've done. I'm complimenting somebody else, not myself, but there may be a better way to say it. But in Bible usage, the term pride is used only in condemnation. Let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 6. If I were going to give you an Old Testament text for this message, I would have started here. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Number one. Proud look. Okay? In fact, we mentioned adultery as one of the possibilities for maybe the worst sin. On this particular list in Proverbs, it didn't make the list. Proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. So murder made it, but pride and lying were listed first. That's kind of interesting to me. Heart that devises wicked imaginations. But in poetical fashion here, what this is saying is all of these things are an abomination to the Lord. A proud look is an abomination to the Lord. A lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. Hands that shed innocent blood are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Maybe you've tried, how do I do that? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, the rest of the verse says this. In listing some of the examples of evil, guess what the next example is? Pride arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Does that sound like the Bible uses pride in a positive context? No. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Let me tell you what evil is. Pride, arrogancy, which are synonymous terms, the evil way and the froward mouth. Guess what? A froward mouth often goes with a proud heart because out of the abundance of what? The mouth speaks. Okay? Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaketh. But I could give you many other examples. I think in a, in a friendly audience, we, we could hopefully have established the premise. I could, I, believe me, I have 14 pages worth of notes on a separate document of examples of where it's listed. But every time it's translated proud 
or haughty or proudly or arrogantly. All of those are in terms of condemnation. That, those terms appear predominantly in Psalms and Proverbs and then in the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then in the smaller prophetic books as well. In most of those instances, God sent His messenger to correct idolatry, to correct those who had turned away from Him, to correct, if I could say it this way, a wrong view of God and a wrong view of self. And over and over again through the prophets, God said, God's going to bring your pride low. I'm going to bring your pride low. I'm going to take your pride and abase you, that kind of a thing. So you have the characteristics of pride. It's a high or exalted view of self, which leads to a wrong view of others and a wrong view of God. You have the condemnation of pride in the Scripture. Number three, I want you to see with me the consequences of pride. The consequences of pride. And here's where I'd like to take a little tour through the Scriptures and just look at some examples. What resulted when pride was a motivating factor. Now, we've covered this. For those of you that have taken Pentateuch, I assume that you've covered it in systematic theology and probably Hebrews and general epistles and other places too. But in 1 John chapter 2, when we talk about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the temptation where the serpent tempted Eve. Every one of those three areas were appealed to by the serpent. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Which one appealed to the pride of life? You sh- thou shalt be as gods, knowing good and evil. Adam. So what are the consequences of pride? Well, first of all, pride caused Adam and Eve to sin and be removed from the garden. You say, well, it doesn't specifically say pride. All right, how about this? Disobedience to God is rooted in what? I don't have to obey what is said or I don't want to. Either way, who becomes the authority that's higher than God? Self. The message that uh, Brother Harper preached last week on Wednesday about from Psalm 1. You know who ultimately becomes the authority in those scenarios? I don't like what God said. Ultimately, it comes down to me, to self, to humanism, to I am the authority. But disobedience, I think we could argue that disobedience is rooted in pride. That is, I don't have to listen. I'm the authority. I'm in charge. Pride caused Adam and Eve to be removed from the garden. And uh, later on in Genesis, we find Abraham negotiating with God because God told him he's going to destroy, you know, Genesis 18 and 19, God told him he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was negotiating with God because he wanted to save his nephew Lot who was over there. God ultimately spared Lot and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In the testimony of God afterwards in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse number 49, we see this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. The first accusation against Sodom as a reason God destroyed Sodom was pride. A wrong view of self and a wrong view of God, which ultimately then results in a wrong view of others. Exodus chapter 2, the Bible says, When Moses came of age, 
he went to visit his brethren and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he says he looked this way and this way, didn't see anybody and he proceeded to take matters into his own hands. You know what that is? It's pride. I'm going to be the deliverer. How do I know that? Well, the New Testament says in recounting that same story, he says he thought that his brethren would understand how that God by his hand would deliver them. I'm the man. I'm the deliverer. How did that go for Moses in Exodus chapter 2? Did that turn out well? No. Put him on Pharaoh's most wanted list, didn't it? He had to run for his life. He spent the next 40 years on the backside of the desert. Moses, I, I would argue that his attempt to deliver Israel on his own was motivated by pride. So, so far we've got three examples. How many of them turned out well? Well, none so far. Let's keep going. Maybe we'll find a good one. Okay. How about Joseph's brothers? Genesis 37, 38, 39. All right. They hated Joseph. Why? The Bible says because of his dreams. And what was the interpretation of his dreams? The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. The obvious interpretation was mom, dad, and all the siblings are going to bow down to Joseph one day. I'm not bowing down to that runt. In case you ha- he hasn't forgotten, he's the little brother. Right? Joseph's brothers didn't want to listen to that. Proverbs 8, excuse me, Proverbs 13, verse 10 also says, Only by pride cometh contention. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. If we fast forward a little bit to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, along in there we find Samuel dedicated to the house of the Lord, and you have the two sons of Eli there, Hophni and Phinehas. How were they living at the, temp- at the tabernacle? They were disregarding God's law. They had sent their servants with instructions that we want to, the, the servant showed up and said, we don't want boiled flesh, we want raw flesh. And if you don't give it, we're going to take it. They had total disregard for the law of God. They thought they were more important than the law of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2 also says that they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Hophni and Phinehas were characterized by pride. That is... A view of self, I am important. I am this high priest's son. I am so important, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can treat people however I want. And you can't do anything about it. That's pride. That is an exalted view of oneself. Exalted beyond that which is appropriate. Again, last week, over the course of the week, we heard about Absalom, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom sitting out in the gate and trying to turn the hearts of the people away from David and towards himself. What was the motivation there? He said, see, you've got a great cause here. I think you've been wronged. If I were the judge, I would rule in your favor. And you see, there's nobody appointed by the king to hear your case because I would be a better ruler than David would be. What's that? Wrong view of self. That's pride. I think Ahithophel, as Brother Tozier preached on Friday, I think Ahithophel was absolutely motivated by bitterness. But I also can't help but think he was motivated by pride as well. You're not going to do that to me and get away with it. You know? So you have Ahithophel. If we drop down to Second Chronicles chapter 32, Hezekiah, if you remember, was very sick, and God sent the prophet Isaiah to say, Hezekiah, put your house in order. You're going to die. 
Hezekiah turned over to the wall and prayed and said, God, would you, would you please spare me? Would you please give me some more time? And before Isaiah had made it all the way out, God told Isaiah, turn around, go back to Hezekiah and tell him I've heard your prayer and I'm going to give you some more time. After that, in 2 Chronicles, it's, uh, and the parallel account in Kings, it says that, um, uh, uh, I believe it was Babylon. Yeah, the king of Babylon sent messengers after he heard that he was sick and that he was healed. And basically they came with a gift and presence and flattery and Hezekiah let his pride get the best of him. Second Chronicles 32 verse 26 tells us that later he humbled himself for the pride of his heart. But in the meantime, he showed them all of his treasure houses and all of his collections and all of his wealth. Now, just from a national security standpoint, is that a brilliant move? Hey, let me show you what's in the national treasury. Let me show you our state-of-the-art security system. Let me show you where I keep my stuff in my own safe at the house. Here's the combination. You know, that's be the modern-day equivalent of what he's doing. Why is he doing that? He was showing off. Now, I know none of you have ever been tempted to show off because somebody else was watching, right? But just... Try to think of an example of somebody else who did that. What am I trying to illustrate? We're all susceptible to this same temptation, right? We're, Hezekiah was showing off. God had blessed him, and instead of giving God the credit for it, he was talking, showing off the might of his kingdom and his wealth and his power and all that. We drop down a little further to the time of the captivity and the returns, getting down closer to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we come to a story of a king who really wasn't much of a king. He had the ring, and he got his, his advisors give him suggestions, and he just kind of signed off on it, okay? But one of his advisors came to him and said, you know, there's a group of people in your kingdom that need to be eliminated. They're a threat. They're seditious. They cannot be trusted. And he's like, all right, fine. Here's the king's ring. Do whatever you want to. Get rid of them. Okay, well, I'm talking about Israel, the Jews, God's people. Okay, so then Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something. That's where we get the familiar phrase, who knows whether you are come to the kingdom, what, for such a time as this. And she says, all right, you pray and I'll pray and then I'll go. And she invites the king and said, I want you to come to the banquet and I want you to bring Haman. And Haman was all puffed up because nobody else was invited with the king except me. I'm pretty important. I'm right there with the king. The next day, what do I want you to do? I want you to come back tomorrow. Same thing. I want you to come back tomorrow and then I'll tell you. Well, then the night before, God gave the king insomnia and he had him read history books, which is a good cure for insomnia. And um, he heard about Mordecai. So he's like, well, how was Mordecai rewarded? He wasn't rewarded. Well, so the next morning, Haman has gone in and he's ready to make his request. He wants to execute um, Mordecai, because he just can't stand him. Why? Because Mordecai refused to bow. Why did it bother Haman so much that Mordecai refused to bow? Because Haman had a pretty lofty view of himself, didn't he? He was filled with pride. So he goes to the king, and the king, you know, King um, Xerxes here, Artaxerxes, he, he's in his infinite wisdom said, which one of my advisors is out there? He doesn't seem to think for himself much. He just got ideas from other people. But he says, who's out there? Well, Haman's out here. I bring him in. And he says, all right, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delighted to honor? All right, so that brings me to Esther 6 and verse 6. 
The king said unto him, What shall be done to the man for whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? He's probably you know, the first one to write the book, The Ten Most Humble People in the World and How I Train the Other Nine. <laughs> Who would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? So he said, well, here's, if you were to really honor somebody, here's what you do. And he gives his list, and the king's like, great, do that for Mordecai. Oh, he was hating life right there, wasn't he? Isn't that what the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament, New Testament too, but in the Old Testament, later on in the book of Daniel, we read this statement, actually by King Nebuchadnezzar, it says this, those that walk in pride, he is able to abase, which means to bring low. God's starting to cut down Haman's high view of himself. You say, well, I'm not like Haman. Well, that's good. Because, you know, you've, you have never been tempted when, when someone says, well, I just need... I need one person who's really good, who's really reliable, who's really dependable and a good student and all that. You've never been tempted to think, they're probably talking about me. I'm the best candidate here. I talk about how the teacher would sometimes you know, lead up to that in a classroom, but you, know, you, you might have been the only one in your class uh, if you were homeschooled. But nonetheless, we're susceptible to that same thing, right? I am thinking of the most diligent student in this student body the one who always takes notes in class, the one who never cuts up, always pays attention, never falls asleep, you know, has devotions for 12 hours a day. <laughs> the pride of life says there's a tendency for me to think, well, most of that sounds like me, right? It probably doesn't, okay? But we're kind of wired with our sin nature to think that way, aren't we? Just like Haman, who would the king delight to do honor more than myself? Daniel chapter 4. God um, had blessed Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember um, earlier in Daniel, there was this dream of a a big um, statue with the head of gold and the silver and the brass and iron and all that. And uh, Daniel says to the king, you are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed by that that he went and built a statue out in the desert and that's when he played all the music and had everybody bow down to it because I am the head of gold. Well, then we get over to uh, Daniel chapter 4 and uh, he's taking a stroll one night in the palace. I'm going to read a couple of verses here from Daniel chapter 4. Um, Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over Babylon Daniel 4, verse 29, At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the, king, of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Sounds like a pretty high opinion of oneself, doesn't it? Verse 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Okay, so then God drives him from mankind, makes him grow uh, claws and feathers and whatever like an animal, and he lives outside like an animal for seven years. Then we get down 
to uh, verse 36 and says God restored him to his kingdom. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the God of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. We get a summary uh, in Daniel chapter 5 um, of, in verse 20, when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. We're told by the, by the Spirit of God that Nebuchadnezzar was motivated by pride. So let's do a quick review of all of these that we have looked at. Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses' first attempt to deliver Israel, Absalom, Ahithophel, Joseph's brothers, Hezekiah, Haman, Nebuchadnezzar. Pride has had fantastic results, right? Not at all. Pride goeth before what? Destruction in a haughty spirit before the fall. This is not exclusively an Old Testament phenomenon. In Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, Jesus' disciples argued about who would be the greatest. Peter, uh, when Jesus warned him, Peter said, Lord, they might deny you, but I'll never deny you. Guess what Peter did? He denied it. Peter had too high a view of himself, didn't he? In Acts chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, we read this of King Herod. The people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So Herod glorified himself rather than exalting God, and God struck him for it. So we have here several examples of the consequences of pride. How many of them had favorable outcomes? None of them. Number four, I want you to see with me in closing a caution against pride. Okay? James chapter 4, verse number 6 says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God blesseth the proud. Oh, did I quote that correctly? Okay, God loves the proud. What does that phrase say? He, Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The New Testament tells us plainly, if you want the blessings of God, you will not get there by being proud. You will receive the blessings of God by being humble. Now, if, you're, if you've turned to other places, turn back with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not a novice, lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Of all the things that could have been listed, what was listed by the Spirit of God here is a novice, or one who's inexperienced or who's not well established is very susceptible to pride. So, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. What's some ways that a young man, because this was written to Timothy, a young man in the ministry, what's some ways that a young man in the ministry could be susceptible to pride? How about the pride of performance? To get in front of people and give a great performance and hear the, the accolades of, boy, you did a great job. Or maybe it's just the fact of being in front of people. How about a young man in a position of ministry who's susceptible to the pride of position? 
In other words, I am the leader. Oh, no, let's say it in a more spiritual fashion. I am the pastor. Did you know that I'm the pastor? Do you know what the Bible says about the pastor? That means you should listen to me because after all, I am the pastor. Now, we did cover this this morning in historical books, but God's the one that told Joshua in Joshua 3, 7, this day I will begin to magnify thee and the people will listen to you like they listen to Moses. If you're a young youth pastor, you're a young pastor, you're a not so young pastor. God is able to magnify you and give you the respect that you need. When you demand respect because of your position... It's going to cause problems. But a novice is susceptible to the pride of performance or the pride of position. You know what else? A novice is susceptible to the pride of education. You know, I, I've been to Bible college for three semesters now, so pastor, I'd like to meet with you while I'm home and tell you some things that need fixing at our church. Or, don't you understand? I went to Bible college. I have all the answers. What you... Hopefully, will realize, and you may not have realized yet, is not only do you not have all the answers, you don't even know half the questions. Okay? What we are giving you are tools. We've not given you every scenario under the sun, but rather we've tried to give you a toolbox or maybe a tool trailer that you can then use to apply to the situations that come up, but you don't have all the answers. Along with the pride of position, sometimes comes the pride of exception. What do I mean by that? I am the leader. I don't have to obey the rules. You want to see exhibits of that? Look at the general behavior of members of the United States Senate and the United States Congress. How many times do they uh, skirt the laws that they require of us? All right? Why? Well, I'm so important, I don't have to obey the law. You know what? People in ministry are susceptible to that same kind of thinking. I'm so important, you know, we hear all the time how workers are needed here and workers are needed there, and, and this, this is such a great need that, you know, God couldn't possibly get rid of me. He needs me. Not true. We are privileged to serve God, okay? But God created the world without you. It survived 6,000 years without you. You'll be here 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long he lives you, leaves you here. And then unless Jesus returns, it'll go on without us too. It is a privilege for us to serve God for the period of time he leaves us here. But we are not so important that we're above the rules. You know, sometimes for a, a novice, there's simply the pride of, uh, that comes with listening to flattery. Eventually, you learn, okay, I better be careful because you know, the last two or three times somebody buttered me up like this, there was something else that was coming down the line, right? But why is, a young, why is this given? Now, I have in, intentionally to this point skipped over maybe the best example of pride because 1 Timothy 3, 6 here says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, maybe that's just simply that the devil wants the man of God to fall into condemnation or disrepute. But I think we could make a pretty fair case that he wants to, to trip up the man of God to fall into the same condemnation that ultimately got the devil cast out of heaven. What is probably the best example of pride would be Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 13, and Ezekiel 28, verses 13 through 17. 
What was it that got Satan cast out of heaven? Ezekiel 28 says he was the anointed cherub that covereth. He was right by the throne of God. What was it that got him cast out of heaven? I'm going to quote from Isaiah 14. Thou hast said in thine heart, Isaiah 14, verse 13, I will ascend into heaven. You remember all of the words for pride? What was a common theme there? High, exalted. What does ascend mean? It means to go up. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. What does exalt mean? To lift up high. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north in a highest and most prominent position. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Again, talking about being high and lifted up. I will be like the most high. What was, what was it that was the condemnation of the devil? It was pride. It was a desire to exalt self above God. And that is exactly the warning that is given to young people in the ministry, not a novice, less being lifted up with pride. What is the pitfall of pride? It's so easy to think too highly of yourself and not highly enough of the Lord, not highly enough of others. What is the correction for that? When Moses stood before the Lord at the burning bush, he didn't struggle with a view of himself that was too high anymore, did he? When Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 stood before um, the captain and he said, I'm not with, are you for us or against us? He said, no, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. I'm here to take over. I'm not here to take sides. Joshua didn't struggle with his place anymore. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he didn't struggle with his place anymore. What is the antidote to pride? It's a right view of God. If we see God as high and lifted up, then I see myself in a relation to that as humble and low. And Lord, I need you because I don't have it in myself. That's why Proverbs says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. That's why God says uh, these things do I hate. Um, I, to fear the Lord is to hate evil, pride. Because pride at its root says I am enough, I don't need God. Now you'd never say it that way. I'd never say it that way. But at its root, pride is very much motivated by a self-sufficiency that says, I don't need God. Of all the warnings here, we're told to beware of the pitfall of pride. Now, I could give an invitation and say, how many of you have ever been susceptible to pride? We all have. Let me ask you this. When those temptations come, do you listen or do you ask the Lord to help you to fight it? Do you enjoy it? Do you feed it? Do you listen to others? Or do you say, God, help me? The best way to fight a pride is to have a right view of God. Because the right view of God helps me to have a right view of myself. And like I said in the introduction, we could make an argument that pride is one of the worst sins in the Bible. If pride got Satan kicked out of heaven and Adam kicked out of the garden and brought destruction and destruction and destruction, there isn't one that we could quantify as worse, is there? Maybe it's equally bad if we want to have that discussion. The point is not to give it a ranking scale. The point is to simply say this. We are all susceptible to pride. 1 John chapter 2 talks about lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you have a right view of pride? 
That is, God, I know this is not pleasing to you. Would you help me to root this out of my life? It's painful. It's not fun. And like I said at the beginning, there's some topics you like preaching on because you think it's going to get a big amen. Nobody wants to preach on this. But the reality is this can ruin your ministry just as fast or faster than adultery. This can ruin your effectiveness for God in, a, in, in, some, in some cases more, a more insidious way because it, it doesn't look as bad as those other things. But I urge you as a child of God, whether you're ever going into ministry or not, beware the pitfall of pride. But particularly for you who are headed for ministry and for those of us who are serving in ministry, beware the pitfall. Understand, God will deliver us, okay? God has enabled us to overcome those temptations. But first of all, we have to acknowledge it as a problem. Beware the pitfall of pride. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed, please. The invitation this morning, I simply ask you to be honest with God, ask God to show you areas that need work, and then commit to that. How are you going to work on that? By, by working on a right view of God. If you see God as high and holy and powerful, it'll help you with a right view of yourself. You, would you commit to the Lord this morning to work on those areas as he puts his finger in your heart? Lord, nobody's worthy to preach this, and Lord, I need your help, and so do every one of us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have a right view of self and a right view of you. Guard us, Lord, keep us from the pitfall of pride. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.